Waldy and Bendy. Hello, this is Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they couldn't stop. I'm Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times, though my friends call me Waldy. Well, when I say friends, I mean friend. I've only got one, really, but what a man he is. <laughs> this is someone who's handled more sleepers than a bloke who works on the railways. He was a famous art dealer and then a famous art historian. And now he's a famous TV presenter who brings us Britain's lost masterpieces. He is, of course, Bendor Bendy Grosvenor. So how are you, Bendy? I'm very well. You're so good for my ego, Wendy. Can I put you in tablet form and, and pop one in every morning? It will be a big tablet, I'll tell you that. <laughs> now, later in the podcast, we'll be talking to Tracy Emin about being an artist in the lockdown. And Bendy and I will be choosing the pictures we want on our walls. But first, something of global importance. Something we should all have in our calendars. Dodgy, dodgy, dodgy. Anniversary. So, Bendy, it's 380 years since the death of Rubens. 380 years! If that isn't a dodgy anniversary, what is? Well, I'm shocked to find that uh, the National Galleries around the world are not having celebratory exhibitions to mark this event. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's a very important number, 380 years. It is indeed. I'm going to play devil's advocate here, right, um, on the subject of Rubens. Um, and I'm going to tell you what I think a lot of people think is wrong with Rubens, right? They think he painted too many naked fat women. That's what he's sort of known for. They think there's too much cellulite in his art. They think his art is over the top, that he hasn't got an off button. Uh, they think he's so damn Catholic. All these gods and Jesuses and Marys, all the Catholic turmoil in his work. And they think he just did too much stuff, you know. He's this, he has this reputation for having a big studio. Every museum's got loads of Rubenses. And he just did too much. Now, isn't all that absolutely true, Bendy? It is true, Waldi. And can we add to the charge sheet that I think he was also um, a little bit overwhelmed by all the commercial work he did. He was clearly a, a money-grabbing capitalist. And sometimes he even got a little bit lazy. If you look at some of his multifigural compositions, one of my favourite is the Emperor Theodosius and St Ambrose on the steps of Milan Cathedral. You'll see that in the crowds, you see the same person a number of times. And that's because he just chucked in the same old head study and the same old figures for use in multiple positions. And it can get quite bewildering that you're looking at these great paintings and suddenly you see twins and triplets and the same people looking down at you, you get very confused. So I think he was quite lazy too. Uh, but of course, that's not really what we think of Rubens, is it, Weldy? Well, it, it, no, it isn't. I, see, I thought you were going to rush to his defence there, but you've thrown in a few googlies as well. But um, yes, I was going to immediately drop my devil's advocate role and to come out with what I really think. And what I really think is that he was one of the greatest artists there's ever been, that he was a force of nature, that some of his work is uh, astonishing and as good as any art has ever been. Uh, I'm a Rubens worshipper. And one of the things I like most about him really is his range. I mean, yes, he did the fat women, he did the cellulite, but look at all the other things he did. Look at the landscapes, look at those stunning portraits of his. I mean, he was a force of nature, just a massive, great, wonderful talent that we should all celebrate. 
of course, I agree. And uh, actually, I think I might go one step further than you because I think in technical terms, in terms of handling paint on a brush, the ability to wield a brush and suddenly create life or magic on a piece of canvas, I think one can claim that he was the best ever. I, I mean, isn't it breathtaking when you look at particularly his sketches and studies, the, the works where he wasn't overwhelmed by, you know, the studio assistants and, and the commercialization of it. He can just create the most wonderful subjects, particularly landscapes, with the barest few strokes of the brush. And I think it's absolutely mesmerizing. But importantly, something that you've taught me, Wildy, is that being a great artist is not just about, I think you say, it's not just about what's in the wrist, it's what's between the ears. And my goodness, didn't Rubens have a lot between the ears? He was, he was not only a, a great artist, but he was a, a proper scholar, a classical scholar. He was a diplomat. He was a spy. I mean, he really could do everything. Indeed, he could. And you see, you mentioned the landscapes. I love the landscapes. And people who bang on about Rubens, how much they hate him, they forget how much Constable owed to Rubens, how much Turner owed to Rubens. What an enormous influence he was on the landscape tradition. But he was basically the first great artist that produced these big, wonderful, rolling, fresh-aired landscapes just for the fun of it. And by then he was successful enough, he'd moved to his chateau, Chateau d'Estine, uh, in Flanders, and he could he could spare the time, if you like, to do them. But they are so breathy and full of air, and I mean, they are some of the greatest landscapes ever painted. And then the other thing I love about him is his pictures of his family. You know, he is this great man. He's this spy. He's this diplomat. He's a man who talks to kings, but he's also a great family man. And some of the most lovey-dovey portraiture in the whole of art is Rubens. It's Rubens looking at his family, his kids those beautiful portraits of his children in the Liechtenstein collection, the pictures of, of his wife, or both wives, in fact. And the, the first wife, Isabella Brandt, he painted a portrait of the two of them sitting in a bower, and they're just sitting there holding hands. It's the most lovey-dovey wedding portrait you've ever seen. It's better than my wedding portrait. It's probably better than your <laughs> wedding portrait, maybe. It's so full of love for his bride. And of course, Isabella Brandt died tragically young. It, the plague got her as well. Um, so it's also a, a, a memento mori, you know, a, a, a thing full of poignancy. He could do it all. He could absolutely do it all. And um, I love Rubens and I will go a long, long way to see him. Yes. In fact, I, I'm glad you mentioned the portraits of his family, because if anyone is distracted by all that cellulite and, and the fat flesh, um, I think the most important pictures he did actually especially for our modern eyes are those ones where he wasn't painting for anyone else he was just painting for himself and his family and those are not overwhelmed with all the sort of you know the market and religious buoyancy that sometimes overwhelms his larger pictures uh, and one of my favorite rubens exhibitions actually was at the rubens house a few years ago did you see it it's called rubens in private and it was just pictures of him and his family i didn't see it but i i, I made a film about him so i saw a lot of the pictures they would have had in the show in fact, if anyone does want to see the Rubens House, there is a very good video which has just gone on to YouTube, uh, made by the director of the Rubens House Museum, Ben Van Beneden. And he's done a sort of half-hour guided tour of the Rubens House in isolation. It's really worth a watch. And of course, he was an architect as well. So that Rubens House, you know, the that thing at the back, there's a kind of triumphal arch, a sort of thing that looks like it's been borrowed from ancient Rome. He designed that. He designed the Franciscan church in Antwerp, didn't he? I mean, there was no end to the things he could do. And, you know, we're, I think, in one way, very privileged, Bendor, in that both of us have managed to make films in which we've had to film Rubens paintings. 
And this, of course, is a huge advantage. I mean, one of the reasons that I know how good Rubens is, is because I filmed him. So for example, you go to something that's one of these really big Rubens paintings, something like the Descent from the Cross in Antwerp Cathedral, or one that I really like. Um, it's the Miraculous Draft of Fishes, which is in, the, um, in, a, in a church in Mechelen. Um, and it's again, it's a great big whopping altarpiece. And from the ground, you just, you just can't see it really. I mean, you, you know, you get the general impression. But mm. if you start filming it, particularly if you manage to get up on a ladder or on a cherry mm. picker and get close to it, yeah. that's when you see the miracles. And this is where we get to what you're talking about, the touch, because there are things going on in the background, little details that no one will ever see. You know, he just did it because we was painting it and it was fun to do it. And these wonderful touches, the way he did cloth, or the little animals he puts in, if there's water, like the fish paintings, if there's water, you see these amazing little evocations of fish and beasties. Uh, and it's that thing that he brought. He always brought more than was asked of him to his work. That's what I really, in the end, fundamentally admire most about him, I think. Yes. Goodness, we're real Rubens fanboys, aren't we? Should we start a club? <laughs> That's a good idea. I'll tell you what, next week on the podcast, let's talk about Rubens. And the week after, we could do Rubens. <laughs> and how about a couple of weeks later, we could do Rubens again. All right. And we could also do the movie. You know, the Hollywood movie, the full-length uh, Charlton Heston three-session biopic sort of thing. That's true. Ruben's the full story. Now, that's a good idea. But all that would have to wait, I'm afraid, Bendy, because uh, we've got something else to do first. We've got to go to the next bit of the podcast. Isolation. Well, Bendy, it's hit us all, hasn't it? These, these curious times we're living through, um, trying to do something useful with art when there isn't any art about but it occurred to me that, that I wanted to know what artists are doing. I mean, I've heard from art dealers, I've heard from you, you know, I've heard from a few people, but what about the artists? Are these good times or not? So I managed to track down someone I've known for a few years and whose work I've always admired. And I spoke to her about what it's like to work under these strange conditions. And she is, of course, Tracy Emin. So Tracy, lovely to talk to you. I mean, first of all, what's your situation now? I mean, are you working in London or Margate? Because you've got this house and studio in Margate, haven't you as well? Well, it's more than a house and studio in Margate. I've actually got a, like um, a giant studio that's, but it's still in the process of being finished. The sculpture studio is built, but the main painting studio is just about to be finished. And then the living quarters where I'll be living is, is being worked on now and I expect it to be finished by the end of August. So I could go down to Margate and work in my sculpture studio, but I am being a good citizen and doing what we were told to do. I am staying in London because that's my primal residence at the moment, and, and this is home. So what are you up to? What's your, what's your daily life then? Presumably you've got a lot of time to concentrate on your art. Well, it's kind of strange. So people who know me really well know but I don't like going out. And when I say going out, I mean like literally going outside. I like to stay in. I don't, I don't really like socialising. Um, I'm quite, how can I say? Isolation and solitude, I thrive on. So if it wasn't such a sort of incredibly horrific, strange, kind of horrible thing that was happening, every part of me would be in a good, good place. But the fear that's outside and the fear that's happening to everybody is kind of like a contra I'm in a total state of contradiction because one part of me actually feels very good with everything. And then another part of me is totally afraid. 
So I'm really happy about staying in and everybody else is staying in, but I'm also doubly afraid to go out now. But has the, has the isolation had um, an impact on your work that you can feel or sense? Oh no, it's kind of, yeah, well actually, literally it has, because I haven't been able to paint or draw a picture since it's happened. Everything's abstract. And I mean, really abstract and kind of quite crazy as well. And, and this started to annoy me last week. I thought I've got to kind of hone it in. I've got to bring it into something I really know. And then I realized I can't because I'd just be lying. I'd just be lying. I can't, there's no images in my mind, no pictures in my mind. Everything has just been completely fractured and broken up and smashed to pieces. And I think, because I'm so sensitive, I can feel the fear. And to answer your question, <laughs> with all those emotions thrown in, I have been working. I've had a bit of a routine, which is really unlike me. I come to my studio on a Monday and I stay here till Thursday and I sleep on the sofa. Wow, that is that really is a proper lockdown. But so basically you're painting though, is that right? You say you're, you're doing abstract work, so you're doing abstract paintings rather than the figurative painting. I'm not even doing abstract painting. I mean, there's one painting that I've painted over six times. Six times I've painted over it. In the end, I've just painted it, most of it all black. And I was looking at my images on my phone and there was about four of those paintings that were really good. But I still painted over them because I couldn't justify what I was doing. It kind of, it's like, you know, it's like Matisse, okay? Matisse lived through two world wars and made absolutely no reference to this in any of his work. Meanwhile, Picasso constantly, again and again, he didn't stop working again and again. And I know which artist I go with. If I've got a choice, Matisse or Picasso, it's going to be Picasso every time. Me too, by the way, yeah. Yeah, it, as an artist, when you have a sensibility and a sensitivity, you feel everything and it would be impossible to just go through this COVID thing and, and not have a reference to it or not feel it. So what you're saying is that the work that you're making at the moment is imbued with the spirit of the times, the spirit of the lockdown. Yeah, I wish it wasn't. I wish I could just paint what I call my normal work or what I was thinking before, but I can't because I'm feeling the lockdown. And, it's, and I suppose part of me, because I have a contentment about being locked in, um, part of me actually inside is fighting out, fighting through that. And that's where the abstract thing comes in because I'm actually attacking the canvas. I'm, I'm going crazy with it. I can't, I can't just, it's like, almost like I'm sort of smashing through, through it, if that makes sense, and trying to get through the other side. A lot of creative people have been saying that, that they've sort of found themselves almost during this, during this lockdown, that they've, they've returned to us or something sort of truthful. I guess they mean that they're not flying around so much and they're not distracted by all the outside world. But is that how you see it as well? I mean, is this basically a good thing for you? No, I just told you I'm like that anyway. Everyone thinks I'm a party animal, but I'm not. Ask anyone who really knows me, I'll go out maybe once a month, so maybe not even that. And a lot of the time I'll spend in France. And my house in France, I have no neighbours and I don't speak French and I have hardly any friends there apart from the stonemason and you know whoever and the gardener whatever it is I, I don't have you know I'm really isolated there and I paint all the time and I live 24 as an artist I like living 24 hours a day seven days a week I don't say I'm an artist I'm in my studio I'm not an artist I'm at home now I'm not a mother I'm not a lover I'm not a wife I'm not I'm not any of those things all I am is an artist and within this lockdown of staying in my studio as well, 
it is. I wake up, at, I go to sleep on the sofa, I wake up at four in the morning, I paint a bit, I dance a bit, I listen to a bit of the world service, I go back to sleep, I wake up at seven, I send some messages to the other side of the world, I go back to my painting. It's a constant, it, it's, it's non-stop. And then when I'm at home, right, this is brilliant, I've discovered my roof again, but not the, the little roof in my garden, but the roof right on top of my house, the mansard roof. And while it's been sunny, I just spent all day up on the roof, but doing nothing, absolutely nothing, which is so beautiful and so amazing because I'm just thinking and looking at the clouds and watching them go by. And I'm realizing as well, essentially how incredibly lucky I am. And that is a good feeling as an artist because it buys you time, it gives you space, it makes you feel open to it. You've got to be open to being an artist. And, and to actually really, like what you said, that maybe other artists have been saying, for me, I realised that um, just how like, incredibly lucky I am. And that's a good feeling with my work because it buys me time, it gives me more confidence and more strength with what i'm doing it gives me more time to make mistakes as well which is a real as an artist you have to make mistakes if you don't make mistakes you won't be a very good artist from my position looking in at you i know you do other things but painting seems to become this kind of main thing that you do yeah, but you can't paint if you go partying you can't you, and you can't paint you have to spend so long just staring at the bloody things and waiting just waiting because if you spend your whole time painting, you're not you're not doing it. You have to have this whole dialogue, this whole thing that goes on, and that's the only. So you need hours and hours and hours of just like pure meditative concentration and being focused. And you can't just walk into the studio and paint a bit. You can if you're making pictures or you're making an object d'art to go on someone's wall, a decorative kind of nice, beautiful thing that's made out of paint. But not if you're doing what I'm doing, which is like a kind of, like, as I said, it's kind of like full on bloody battle, you know? So I love it. I'm really enjoying it. Well, that all sounds very positive. Um, I'm looking forward very much to seeing what you've come up with, Tracy. Can't wait to see the show. Thank you so much for talking to us and good luck in your isolation. Thank you. Well, I really am looking forward to that show. Um, it's going to be interesting. There's going to be lots of interesting shows, I think, coming out of the, the isolation period. What are all these artists doing behind their locked walls? Um, but, Bendy, that was interesting, wasn't it? The, the, the strains of working right now, really. I loved that interview. I thought it was so, so heartwarming. And, and actually, I'd, I'd describe it as refreshing, because I always love to hear artists speaking so frankly about their work. It's, a, it's quite a, a useful contrast, isn't it, between the way most people let's face it in the art world talk about artists work which is full of guff and all sorts of you know adjective laden sentences that just make you want to slit your wrists and i'm not saying that tracy emmett doesn't address complex and difficult and profound issues in her work but i just love the way she spoke about it in such a dare i say it accessible way and i think that might explain why she's such a popular artist today that's right yes what's interesting though is she's talking about painting all the time now if, if you wind back whatever it was 20 years to the start of her career she was known for her performances for her films for her photo pieces for these giant blankets that she used to, to sew but not really for her paintings and yet she's managed this extraordinary transformation really from someone who was really out there in, in all sorts of ways to someone who's sitting at home in her studio painting 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 just like an old-fashioned artist it's interesting isn't it well I have to confess here to being a bit of a Tracy Ammon fan, 
I am a great admirer specifically because her, her latest work is underpinned by great technical proficiency. Her drawings are quite extraordinary. In fact, they often remind me of Rembrandt, the way they're so powerful with a, with a scarcity of line. Um, and that underpins her paintings. I think she is one of the most important British artists since the war. And I also think that in 100, 200, 300 years time, she will be one of the handful of British artists that people still talk about. I'm sure you're right. Of course, she, she's been head of drawing at the Royal Academy. She's she's worked really hard on improving that side of her. She's always been a fan of, of Monk and, and, and Egon Shaler, um, but she's just tried so hard to get proficient at that thing that really good artists can do, which is to make a tiny mark say so much. She's got so good at that, hasn't she? Yes, yes. And I loved actually the way she discussed in the interview the the effort, the mental effort she has to put into formulating a painting. Um, it reminded me of that famous story of Leonardo da Vinci when he's painting the Last Supper and the abbots um, of, of the priory where he's painting it get really cross with him because they say that he just stands in front of a bare wall all day doing nothing and he has to justify himself and say well I'm thinking about what I'm going to paint and then of course he gets his revenge on the abbot by by portraying him as Judas in the Last Supper before people get too concerned that I'm comparing Tracy Emin to Leonardo da Vinci. I think it's fascinating to be able to draw that line from Leonardo da Vinci to Tracy Emin in terms of the, the mental agility, the mental effort artists have to go through. And it's no surprise to hear that in uh, a situation like this with a lockdown, that can become even more challenging. I'll tell you a good Tracy Emin story. I think it's a good story, right? Back in 1997, uh, the Turner Prize had a shortlist, an all-female shortlist. It was the first time they'd had one. And um, I was asked to do a little film uh, that was going to prompt a discussion at the end of this Turner Prize that year so that we could discuss some of the issues in the show. And the most important thing about it, apart from the fact that it was an all-female shortlist, was that there were hardly any painters. Well, there were no painters in it. There was um, a, a fantastic video piece by Gillian Waring. There was stuff by Angela Bullock. There was, there was Cornelia Parker. Um, and uh, people were moaning about this, you know, oh, not enough painting, they were moaning. So I, I was roped into doing this piece and, and went afterwards, I had, they organised a live, a live debate after the handing over of the Turner Prize, which was won by Gillian Waring that year. They organised a live debate and the topic was, is painting dead, right? And I had to do a little filmette, which I did. And, and my, my view is, is that painting is, is never going to be dead, but that it's part of a, uh, of a big quiver of arrows that artists have these days. You can do other things. You can do installations. You can make video art, etc. That was my argument. Um, and it was prompted really by Tracy Emin because I knew what she had been doing and it wasn't basically painting at that point. And I sort of wanted to defend her because I just loved her, her energy and her her, her truth really the, the way she was honest about herself and about art so organized this live debate on channel four with some big names you know i mean there was that david sylvester who was the numero uno art historian at the time norman rosenthal was there from the royal academy and it was presented by by tim marlow who's gone on to so many great things became head of the royal academy um and there we all were waiting for tracy to turn up um and, and she turns up uh, a bit late stumbles into the room completely drunk because it was the end of the uh, Turner Prize that day, you know, that night. Um, and she sits down, she listens to these old men around her talking for a bit and she says, oh, I've had enough of this. I'm going to go and talk to my mum. And out she stomps, right? And of course, you know, we're all sitting there thinking what we're going to say. And if you listen to the video, there's a video of it on YouTube, you can just hear a plaintive Valdemar Yenushka going, 
goodbye, Tracy, as she stumbles, stumbles out of the room. But it always annoyed me because she woke up the next day as the most famous artist in Britain. This was a huge scandal. Everybody noticed it. And nobody, nobody mentioned my argument about painting and, and how it had ex been expanded and how important it was to see it as one arrow in the quiver. So, um, yeah, that's what Tracy did for me. But um, uh, <laughs> I've always been an admirer and she has always had it. She's always had this truthful thing. She just is. She's a force of nature like Rubens. She is what she is and she's wonderful. Mm. Well, quite right that people will remember Tracy and frankly, not uh, witterers like you and I. That's, that's <laughs> our fate in life, isn't it? <laughs> Well, yeah, but I like wittering. So we're going to witter on a bit more in a minute once we go to the next part of the show. On the wall. So, Bendy, it's the bit of the podcast that I know you like best, and it's where you get to choose any artwork in the world that you can have to hang in your museum without walls. So you can have it, you can stare at it during the lockdown. And what are you going to give us this week? Well, this week I'm I'm reading the Royal Collection, Weldy, because um, I think it's a tragedy that there's too much art locked up in, in palaces at the moment, so I'm going to liberate some. And actually, I'm going for a drawing. It's a drawing by Hans Holbein the Younger. It's a portrait of one of his many English sitters called Sir John Godsalve, who was uh, briefly an MP and controller of the Mint. He was quite a, a sort of a mid-level courtier in the Tudor court. Um, and Holbein's drawings are, I think, amongst the best ever made. They are so extraordinarily powerful, aren't they? And these days, with our modern eyes conditioned by photographs and lenses, it's easy to get blasé about just the ability to capture a good likeness. But Holbein was one of the best portraitists who ever came to Britain. And this portrait of Sir John Godsalve, he's just looking at us. He's not a particularly handsome person, but my goodness, there's such presence in there. You can peer into those eyes and wonder what he's thinking, and wonder what's going on in his life. And that's what Holbein allows us to do. And that, frankly, is one of the reasons why, you know, the Tudors are so popular to this day, because Holbein gives us so many wonderful faces and characters from the period. This particular drawing is, is unique in Holbein's oeuvre because it's one he, uh, for want of a better phrase, he coloured it in. So it's a sort of, uh, it's got watercolour wash over it, and there's a nice sort of a blue background. So it, it really would look beautiful on the wall. And there is some evidence to say that he intended these drawings to be sort of paintings hangable on the wall like this. So it's going to look very nice in my private museum. It would look wonderful. Of course, if you go to the Sunday Times um, website and look up Waldy and Bendy, uh, you can get all these pictures reproduced for you. But it's a, it's, it's, Holbein is so good, I agree with you. And it's that spooky thing where people who were around 500 years ago still seem to be there, don't they? They seem mm. so real you can feel them you can look at them and touch them they're 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 so tangible and the great thing holbein did was to invent henry the eighth of course because without holbein's iconic image of henry the eighth of this kind of four square monarch standing there big hal we wouldn't really know what henry the eighth looked like but he became henry's official painter and he left us the image the one that everybody has when they think of henry the eighth they think of holbein so i don't think hillary mantel would have been able to write her books and no one would have banged on about henry the eighth and his many wives if Holbein hadn't painted him that that memorably. But yes, I mean, this gallery of incredibly real faces he left behind, not just Sir John Godsalve, but all the others as well. Astonishing work, absolutely astonishing. Yes, and, and in Henry VIII, you're right, that Holbein created that, that first archetypal British bulldog character. Uh, and you can draw a line from that right through to Churchill and right through to our present day, this sort of, um, you know, British exceptional spirit that we, we stand facing the world face on, 
arms akimbo. The bulldog spirit. Slightly overweight and flabby, mm. yes. <laughs> but he did good women as well. Um, the, uh, one of the things that Henry VIII did was to send him, send him out into Europe to do portraits of the women whom he wanted to marry. And there's a famous example of Anne of Cleves, who I think was, ended up being uh, Henry VIII's fourth wife, didn't she? And, and um, uh, Holbein was sent over to France to paint her so the king could decide whether he, he wanted to marry her or not after all. Um, and he dashed off this rather interesting picture, which hangs in the Louvre now. Um, and it's 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 done on paper. That's what's unusual about it, because it obviously needed to be done quickly and rolled up and brought back so Henry could have a yes. look at it. But I haven't seen this is this this thing about filming again, Bendy. When we were filming the Anne of Cleves picture for something that I was doing about Holbein, if you zoom right in on the hair, and I'm talking about a microscopic lens, right, 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 right in, as close as the camera will go you will see hidden in a little jewellery ornament in her hair, a picture of a king and a queen, sort of together, having a sort of a chat, a kind of lover's tryst. And it's, it's something that no one could have seen. I, I suspect that not even Henry VIII ever noticed it. Only, only somebody who got as close as we did with a camera would have seen it. That little secret message from, from Holbein to the rest of the world about, about the king and his impending wife. So exciting. Yes, probably revealing Holbein's frustration at being sent on this ridiculous errand to paint a picture just to, so that Henry VIII could decide whether he was going to be pervy enough to, to want to um, uh, consummate the marriage with Anne of Cleves. Um, ultimately, we, we know um, he was disappointed by the real, <laughs> the real Anne of Cleves. Um, perhaps Holbein had the last laugh. I hope so. Uh, I really hope so. Now I'm going to change tone a little bit um, now for my picture, um, uh, Bendy, but it's not really a picture. It's more of a, an art event in a package, if you like. And it was prompted by an exhibition that I saw uh, a, a few months ago in London uh, about an artist called Charlotte Salomon, of whom I'd barely heard, I have to say. But this show at the Jewish Museum was about something she had left behind. Now, her story is fascinating. She was Jewish, born in Berlin in, in, uh, just before the Nazis came to power. She was a, a little girl who was taught music and had these rather neurotic parents. And when the war broke out and the, after the rise of the Nazis, they sent her to France, where um, she was ca cared for by her grandparents. And to cut to the tragic end of all this, she ended up in Auschwitz. She was captured and died in Auschwitz. She was pregnant at the time, and she was just 26 years old. What nobody knew was that in this time in France, she produced this extraordinary thing. I say thing because it, it's not quite clear what it is, right? It's it, it's a sort of graphic novel. That's perhaps the, the closest thing I can find to it. It's it's 760 odd pages, all packed with drawings, with writing on them and, and stuff. And there's there are musical inscriptions so that you can play music while you're looking at them. Uh, well, she's prompting you to listen to certain bits of music. And it's her autobiography. So it's her inner life. Um, told with this extraordinary sequence of drawings. So I've chosen it as one work um, because, uh, first of all, I wanted to be bigger than your Tintoretto thing last week, which was uh, so unfair that you had this massive great extension to your museum of that world, whereas I had only a small picture. So this, if you laid them all out, these 769 drawings uh, of her pictorial autobiography would be huge, and I could happily spend a long time just looking at them. But what's amazing is the influence of cinema on these. Mm. Now, of course, she had grown up in a, in a Berlin where German expressionist cinema was happening. So she knew you know, Fritz Lang and she knew Murnau. And these things have gone into the work. So there is a drawing that I, I'm going to put up on the, on the Sunday Times website of, of herself and her mother lying in bed. And the mother, who in, ended up committing suicide, is, is telling her daughter, um, 
I'm going, when, I, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. And you see this kind of angel going up to heaven. And when, in, when I'm in heaven, I'm going to find out how wonderful it is. And then I'm going to come back and knock on your window, Charlotte, and I'm going to give you a message, a description of heaven. And all this is told in one drawing with, it goes up to heaven, it comes down the other side. This really inventive technique that you, you know has been kind of borrowed from German expressionist cinema. And just the sheer amount of invention, of difference, of, of personal involvement in this very sad, very compelling story um, is absolutely gripping. So that would certainly occupy me for a good week of, of reading and looking. So that's my choice. That's my choice, Bendy. Well, I'm so glad you brought that to my attention, actually, because I'm ashamed to say I wasn't aware of it or her story. And my goodness, it is absolutely heartbreaking stuff, isn't it? Uh, someone so gifted, like so many millions, could have just had their life uh, wasted like that. Um, I think, I'm not sure I could actually have that in my museum without walls. It would just make me too sad. Uh, the self-portrait uh, which she painted is really very proficient and deeply profound, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, talk about haunting. Yes, it's all haunting. The whole thing is haunting. See, I don't mind a bit of sadness. Maybe that's the difference between us, Bendy. Um, in fact, during these lockdown moments, um, I've welcomed sadness. But you're right on one score, which is that we have to make everybody happy and we all have to cheer up, don't we? So uh, maybe we'll leave it at that. Until next week, when I hope we'll find something a little bit more cheery. Uh, it's goodbye from me, and I believe it will be goodbye from Bendy. Cheerio. Woldy and Bendy!